Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, China's Vice Premier Liu is coming to D.C. He's actually in D.C. right now as we speak to talk to U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer to resume trade talks. To help us kind of preview what we might see coming out of these uh, discussions is Dr. Sam Natapoff. Uh, he is president of Empire Global Ventures. He joins us in studio here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Sam, we've been down this road before. They've been talking for a while. The rhetoric has been very high, very heated. What should reasonable expectations be coming out of these trade talks? What are you looking for? Well, in the words of William Shakespeare, nothing shall come of nothing. Okay. These, tra these trade talks are nothing. The, the Chinese are desperate to get this trade war over with because the Chinese economy is now running at its lowest rate since re recording of that economy has happened in 1992. They're at the lowest industrial level in decades. Uh, President Xi has had to sideline multiple domestic uh, policy initiatives because his economy is running slow. He needs this over with without bowing and scraping to Donald Trump. Donald Trump needs this over because the U.S. economy is slowing. Three key members of his coalition, agriculture, oil, and autos are all suffering. And he just got his hat handed to him by Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi, and he needs a public win. Okay, so what's a win? From this meeting, what could happen that's a win for both sides? For both sides. The Chinese will probably offer somewhere in the region of 150 to $200 billion worth of purchases of U.S. goods in those three sectors that I mentioned. Uh, earlier today, the Beijing legislature passed a law that uh, banned forced technology transfer from foreign companies inside China, which had been a sore point for the American government for some time. But the question is... <clears throat> Will, uh, will Donald Trump choose the path that the Chinese government wants, which is a superficial treaty, which means nothing? Or will he go the path of his U.S. trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, who really wants to uh, address structural inequalities and market access issues? And my guess is he'll, uh, he'll split the difference. So that is really the key issue. If you talk to, just as, as Lisa and I talk to uh, trade nego negotiators and people who follow this issue, the real some of the real meat of the matter is some of these technology issues in the you know, it, 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 those are really hard. You talk about technology and intellectual property and all those issues. Your suggestion is those are off the table, at least for now. Absolutely. And not only that, this is becoming exponentially more complicated with the emergence of Huawei as a legal issue in the United States, not simply an issue of economic competition. Right now, what we're seeing... The United States used to have a cold war with the Soviet Union. The United States is in the middle of a gold war with China. This is about money and technology, not ICBMs and West Berlin. And Huawei is putting us right in the center of uh, what two different economies look like, a command economy and an open one. And the command economy can't let go of control of technology. I don't understand how the technology aspect can be completely divorced from the uh, just sort of soybeans and oil and cars aspect. Because even if they do come up with some narrow trade agreement out of this meeting that, that begins in just a few minutes in Washington, D.C., I mean, how can President Trump face the questions of you still gave away the store because you didn't really crack down on these other issues? And China, meanwhile, how can they go back and say, how can you make a treaty with a, com with a country uh, that's going after one of your biggest and best assets? Well, remember, President Trump ran on 
in 2016 on getting fairer trade agreements and about the U.S.-China trade deficit. If he lowers that deficit, he can declare victory the way a U.S. senator said, let's get out of Vietnam back in the day. Let's just declare victory. It may not be victory, but we'll call it that. Then you flip it over on the other side, on the China side. President Xi wants this to go away so he can focus inside China. Most people, most companies in China are not focusing on this except to know that their economy is slowing down. Remove that impediment and China can get back to work the way they want to. Okay, so maybe we get a light trade deal here. Is there a scenario in the remainder of this administration to revisit it on a more substan you know, substantial level? And what would be the catalyst to get us there? Well, again, we've got 30 days before... Uh, President Trump will raise tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods from 10% to 25%. That's a pretty good sort of Damocles. Now, this is a temporary treaty, and, the, and President Xi understands that Donald Trump needs public wins. The question is, how much will he give them that? And it's that negotiation. We're really going to find out whether Donald Trump is the king of the art of the deal. All right. You talked about China's economy and how it's slowing down. Uh, that seems to be weighing on a lot of people's expectations for global growth. But perhaps more importantly, Europe has really slowed. And I want to shift the focus a little bit over uh, to Europe. And I'm just wondering, you know, as we look at Brexit and sort of the debacle that continues being a debacle, are, are we getting any more clarity here? Or is it just getting more and more muddied uh, and only uh, becoming more of a drag on the broader euro economy? Well, when it comes to Brexit, two things happened yesterday that are incredibly important. One is, is that Theresa May said that she will attempt to reopen the exit deal with the European Union. This won't work. Not only that, several months ago, she said this wouldn't work, but now she's going to do it anyway because she suffered the worst loss in the history of British politics, and she's licking her wounds and trying to woo her party back to her. Now, that's the first thing that happened. The other thing that happened yesterday is that a series of amendments to Brexit were voted on in the House of Commons. One of them was called the Cooper Amendment, which was going to essentially eliminate a no-deal Brexit. That lost by, by about 23 votes. There was another amendment called the Grieve Amendment, a Grieve Amendment, which said they wanted to um, explore alternatives to the May plan for Brexit. That also lost by 23 votes. Those lost while, you know, while Theresa May was defeated by 230 votes two weeks ago because the Conservative Party came back to Theresa May because now she's blaming Europe for the problems and not Britain. This is irresponsible. It is irrational. And that's why she won her party back. Okay, so let me put you on the spot, which I know there's no answer, but that's my job. How do you think this plays out now? She's going to go back to Brussels, ask for renegotiation. The EU has already said they do not want to renegotiate. I'm kind of running out of options for Theresa May and the, and the UK government. The EU government said no today, about four hours ago, right after the debate. So that, that door is closed. What, you know, what investors and business people, clients of my company, Empire Global Ventures are asking, like, what's going to happen? A big step towards a no-deal Brexit just got happened yesterday. Um, the pound's at $1.30 today. It could go to one thirteen if they go to a no-deal Brexit. That's what we're looking at. Wow. All right, 113. Really interesting. We love having you. Thank you so much for coming on. And really, we love we love the enthusiasm as well as also the insights, you know, and, and really it's interesting to think about uh, the sort of split discussions with China and the U.S. and all the expectations there, all the Brexit hubbub, and we just continue getting like unresolved resolutions. Unresolved resolutions. And you start to hear it, I think, this quarter with some of the CEOs when they talk about their guidance. One of, and they, you know, they maybe they had a decent fourth quarter, but when they talk about 2019, it's a nice way to just say, 
you know, we're a little bit cautious on 2019. We're just not sure what's going to happen on two major trading blocks. Yeah, there have been a couple of earnings reports that are just big shrug emojis. Dr. Sam Nadipoff, thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Sam Nadipoff is president of Empire Global Ventures, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. We've been talking a lot about Apple's earnings, but let's talk about what happened at AT&T. They added a net 13,000 U.S. monthly wireless subscribers. Uh, they just reported that is compared to projections of about 252,000 monthly wireless subscribers. What happened, John? So first I'll clarify that's 13,000 contract subs. So those are the plans that you were and I are on as opposed to the prepaid business. And frankly, contract is what people focus on. So it was not a good number. Uh, it's part of what the stock is reacting to this morning would be my guess. Um, and it's worrisome for me to see that because at its core, AT&T still relies very, very heavily on that wireless business. And I think I think at least part of this had to do with um, competitive losses. You know, you saw a great number out of Verizon for the quarter. So I think overall the industry is it's very low growth, but it's healthy. It's not like the whole industry took everyone down. I think this is an AT&T problem. And um, it may relate to a little bit of management distraction with the, with the integration of Time Warner as well. They have an awful lot of balls in the air right now. Uh, John Butler is joining us, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I was so excited to get to AT&T and so shocked know, by these crazy. numbers. I, I was just like, oh my God, John, speak. So John, so we had a, a, a big miss <laughs> on the wireless side, and that's obviously for AT&T a core business for them. A competitive marketplace, as you, as you mentioned. Let's look at the pay TV business. They acquired DirecTV several years ago for a gajillion dollars. And I think since the day they closed, they've been losing subscribers at a rate that's more than maybe even the most pessimistic investors thought. What is going on with their DirecTV business? So satellite in general is a bad business. Um, it is suffering from the same trends that pay TV is, right? Anyone in the cable business, as you know well, Paul, is you know, they're suffering from this cord-cutting trend. Um, I don't think satellite has ever been a big focus for AT&T. Part of the rationale for buying DirecTV at the time was to get access to the uh, content contracts and renegotiate them to be able to display content or distribute content to, uh, to wireless devices, in particular to smartphones. So in that sense, they achieved their goal. Um, will it ever pay off for them is still the big question. Uh, we had a big loss on the DirecTV Now side, uh, DirecTV Now being that pay TV streaming product that AT&T created sort of out of that whole satellite business, and that is direct to smartphone content distribution. It's a package of, there are a lot of different options, but call it 60 to 250 channels. And they lost 267,000 subs during the quarter. Yeah. That's a big number and a big loss. And it reflects them moving off that introductory promotional pricing that we had last year 
and now they're beginning to walk it back to full prices, and we're seeing um, we're seeing the effect of that. $179 billion. That is how much debt AT&T has. So as we look at the stocks, which are uh, falling about 4% today after these uh, earnings numbers, I just have to wonder, does this get AT&T closer to a junk rating? Because right now it has close to the lowest investment grade credit scores. And this matters tremendously, given that they are a massive uh, obligor. They, they, they owe so much debt. They do, and that's the risk here. Is you know, if they're if they were to, if the rating agencies were to re-rate them and move them out of that investment grade category, that would be devastating for Ma Bell, AT and T, right? So really, their only option, as some people see it, is to cut the dividend. They addressed that on the call and they said, look, we have a lot of assets, a lot of assets that we can sell. Front and center was their 10% stake in Hulu. And Paul, you probably have a better guess as to what that might be worth than I. Yeah, there's some, there's some value there, but that, but that's not going to get them where they need to be. Arguably yeah, but that seems like the future. Small. So why would they be trying to get, get exactly. sort yeah. of their, I mean, they have basically an option to the future there. It's a minority stake. You know, one could argue that it's better to be sold, you know. It is, I think. And so, and they generate ample free cash flow. So the question is, can they hit hit their cash flow targets for the year? And if they do, and they pay down debt with that, where does that get them in terms of a leverage ratio? Their goal is 2.5 times. We'll see if they get there. The race is on, so to speak, now, so John, with, or the clock is ticking. Exactly. So, you know, they just spent $100 billion enterprise value buying Time Warner, arguably some of the best media assets on the planet. Did they articulate any further their strategy for trying to generate a return on that investment? So there's a lot of moving parts at AT&T right now, including the content strategy to a degree. But I would say the the, the key pillars of that are Number one, they're trying to build a programmatic advertising platform and take analytics that they're gathering on the wireless side and begin to apply that to the ad inventory at the Turner properties to get a higher CPM, as they call it, a higher cost per eyeballs in that ad business using analytics. And that... um, that whole process is well underway. I think they're doing that. I think they're going to get higher ad rates out of Turner. And um, I really feel good about that. I think uh, the other thing they want to do on the content side is, just as we were alluding to a moment ago, they want to get into that streaming pay TV business and make money not only from subscription revenue, but also make money on the ad side. They'll have ad inventory to sell there. So, so how how difficult is their hand right now, given the fact that they need to expand in these areas, but they really do need to reduce their debt load? They do. There's a lot of pressure on them this year. This is a key year of integration and also execution on the plan that I just talked about. Um, There's a lot of money at stake. There's a big investment there. They have a great management team, actually. I really think they can pull it off, but the pressure is on. What did they articulate just one, you know, everybody's talking about getting into the streaming business. What is their streaming strategy? So I think the key strategy there is to really target current AT&T wireless subscribers. Every other word out of their mouth is bundling. 
And so if they can bundle a streaming pay TV product with a wireless subscription, maybe with a satellite subscription, along with some broadband in their fiber markets, then, you know, perhaps they have a good strategy on their hands. I, l- I love the idea of, you know, would you like a bundle phone? Right. Bundle. Exactly. Bye, bundle. Exactly. <laughs> the bundle. Uh, John Butler, thanks so much for uh, par- helping us parse through the AT&T uh, results. John Butler, Senior Telecom and Service Equipment Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence here today with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, Apple stock is up about 4% in early trading here today, despite reporting uh, first holiday quarter sales decline in nearly 20 years. Analysts viewed the results as, quote, better than many had feared, according to Piper Jaffrey analyst Michael Olson. So I guess we have that. Um, to kind of dig into the numbers a little bit, we have Michael Scanlon on the phone. Michael's a portfolio manager of Manu Life Asset Management in Boston. Michael, thank you for joining us. I wonder if you could just start us out and kind of give us your view on the Apple story. A lot of ch- has changed over the last couple of years. How are you guys viewing this story? And did you see anything in this quarter's numbers to change that outlook? Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. Uh, I think when you look at the results last night, definitely very negative expectations going into the results in light of the uh, guidance, the uh, pre-announcement that they did at the beginning of January. I think ultimately the reaction that you're seeing today is that the guide for uh, next quarter was less bad than people were expecting. Um, and I also think if you think back to the beginning of the year when they did give that pre-announcement, you know, you had a quarter where they were pre-announcing negative numbers and they were also going to be changing their uh, uh, segment disclosure where they're just giving you products and services now instead of the granular data on each one of their devices. So I think you had the sort of multiplicative effect of those two things at the same time, which led to the sell-off in the shares earlier in the year. Michael, are you more positive or more negative on Apple shares after these earnings? So I think when you look at the business, uh, last night they, Tim Cook spent a lot of time and gave a fair amount more disclosure than typical uh, into the insights and the revenues. And you know when you look at some of the contributing factors to the slowdown that led to the 15% year-over-year drop-off in iPhone sales, you know certainly China was a well-known one. Uh, the battery replacement cycle was also a headwind, and then they gave good data in terms of the impact of subsidies that they're seeing overseas. So I think when when you look at the business, I mean, there's no doubt that it's more mature than it was a handful of years ago. That's undeniable. Uh, But when you look at Apple, I mean, they still have this 1.4 billion device install base that they're going to be able to monetize, 900 million of which are iPhones, uh, and the focus on doubling the services business to $50 billion, which is gross margin positive for them. You know, I still think that there's a lot to like there in addition to the capital return profile. So, Michael, that's I think you very nicely summarized kind of a, a more the bullish case for a longer term bullish case for Apple, which is, you know, yes, the Apple, the phone is a mature business and that has been six, that is 60 percent of the revenue. But gee, we've got some other businesses that are growing nicely. Let's focus on one of them, which I think most bulls hang their hat on, and that is the services business. And you talked about doubling the services revenue by 2020. Do you think that can ever be a driver for this company and this stock the way phones have been over the last 10 years? I do. Uh, and, 
you know, frankly, I expect they talked last night about some of the, uh, the the lineup that they have in terms of innovation going forward. But, you know, some of the more important parts of innovation going forward will be how they continue to monetize the install base in that relates directly to the services side of the business. You know, there's been countless data points of speculation on some sort of a TV offering or a streaming video offering and those kind of things. And I think that that is likely to come. And frankly, again, if you've got this install base that they have, and even if you want to say, well, it's only the 900 million of iPhones that matter because everything else is just an incremental device, that's fine. That's still a pretty solid install base that they have the ability to monetize going forward. And we never know what Apple's going to come up with in terms of innovation. They just don't give you a lot. Talking about the install base, uh, some people think it's interesting that Tim Cook did give the install base and really emphasize it to such a degree. It certainly is helpful with respect to services, but also potentially with content. Uh, And Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities was on Bloomberg Television earlier this morning, and he thinks that within the next three to six months, Apple will make an announcement about some kind of acquisition of a, another sort of content provider, uh, say Sony uh, or, or one of these others. And I'm just wondering, how likely do you expect that? And would that be a positive, in your opinion, for Apple shares? Yeah, very, very tough to speculate on M&A. And frankly, that's just not how Apple has built their business, right? Their biggest acquisition ever was Beats. And I think that was about $3 billion. If you're talking about buying some sort of a production studio, uh, of size that would matter, matter to Apple, you'd be talking about a much bigger number. So I, I would say that's a low probability event. I think what they'll continue to do is some of what they're doing right now and in investing in some original content, but not sort of a bet the farm type amount or a, a huge M&A cycle. Um, but, you know, that is where the trends are going and they have this install base that they can monetize. So I, I do expect that they're going to try to do more on that front. I'm just not sure it's going to be driven by some transformative acquisition. So, Michael, just in 20 seconds, do you expect them to pivot at all as it relates to emerging markets and maybe go down market to try to, you know, compete more, say, in the Indias of the world? Uh, so I, if they did decide to do that, I don't think the stock reacts positively because that's likely going to be uh, gross margin diluted for them. So they'd just be chasing revenue for the, the sake of chasing revenue with lower priced iPhones. Um, I think what you'll continue to see is, you know, maybe they do something at the margin in terms of pricing these devices in emerging markets or other areas where it's a little bit more cost prohibitive. Um, but, you know, they, they buy themselves a lot of time. I mean, this company kicks off a tremendous amount of cash flow. They buy a ton of stock. They pay a dividend. So they can kind of weather these periods of disruption that they have in terms of their growth trajectory. Michael Scanlon, thank you so much for being with us and for your insight on Apple. Michael Scanlon is Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management. Uh- We're going to hear from the Fed today. It's going to be an exciting announcement, or it won't be. Uh, I'm so I'm, I'm sure that Fed Chair Jay Powell hopes that it won't be. But we're hoping that it will be. And Ira Jersey joining us now uh, to talk about what some of the uh, iterations of Fed speak we might just be hearing. Uh, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. So, Ira, focus is really on the balance sheet. What is the absolute lowest amount that the balance sheet could be 
for markets to continue to function in a normal way. Yeah, so our estimate for that is a, a, about another $600 billion lower. So you're talking about about 3.2-ish, $3.3 trillion on the, the Fed's balance sheet. And, and the mechanism as to why that number is important is because banks hold these reserves. They have to hold them. So, so there's this fallacy that says banks aren't using their reserves. Well, banks are using their reserves. Reserves exist. Um, and the only way that the that reserves can That's get- very philosophical. It sort of feels they like <laughs> they, they exist. It's like Descartes, you know? Well, exactly. it's like, you know, air or something, right? It's just a matter of who's using it at any given moment, right? If you're holding your breath and I'm breathing, then I'm using the air. You're not. But but reserves are the same way, right? So, so some banks hold a lot of reserves. Other banks hold very few. But those reserves exist and, and they get traded between, between banks. Um, so, but there is a point when, and these reserves are used in some calculations for banks uh, capital ratios, right? So there's this thing called liquidity coverage ratio, where banks hold these, and if they hold held less than um, a trillion-ish of them, then banks would have to replace those reserves with something else, and the most likely candidate would be treasury bills. And you're not seeing significant buying of treasury bills by banks. So um, to me, that, that tells us we're not at this constraint level yet, and I think that constraint level is about um, another another $600 billion of runoff, which basically gets you into 2020. So, Lisa, let's just let's. I think for the last two weeks, we've asked that question, i.e., where do you think the Fed is going to take its balance sheet to? Maybe a dozen different analysts and portfolio managers and and, and pundits, and we get nothing. Ira, right off the bat, gives us a number: three point three billion. Reflecting trillion, 600 trillion. trillion. Oh, yes. Thank you. He's used Thank to you. dealing in corporate world. That's right. Yeah. Corporate <laughs> world is a billion. <laughs> government world is trillions. Right. That's so six hundred billion right off. What is your sense of timing of that roll off? And 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 tell us how the timing, whether it's impacts the markets, whether it's slower or faster than what the market's discounting. Sure. So so the way that, that runoff is for the Treasury portfolio is that it, we know what it's going to be for the next year and a half. Um, so because the, the Treasury uh, uh, has issued these bonds, the Fed's purchased them, and they mature at various points. So the Fed balance sheet runoff actually peaks in May and June of this year. And then after that, it actually slows down quite substantially just because the Federal Reserve doesn't own as many treasuries that are maturing in, say, November this year and December this year as they do right now. So so it actually slows down as, as the year goes on. That being said, it's about $400 billion in, in calendar 2019, another 300 plus uh, billion dollars in uh, 2020. So it's still a big number, right? And there still is. And if we're, if I'm right, and we need to get down to about a trillion dollars of excess reserves from the 1.6 trillion today, you're saying in the first or second quarter of next year, the Fed is going to be done. And it might even be done before that, because you know, banks are going to say, hey, we're getting to this constraint where we're going to have to start replacing reserves with T-bills and things like that. And that's when you start to get market disruptions. I, I, I want to go further with even why it matters, why the banks should basically be handed free money from the Fed and why they shouldn't have to go out and make markets. But I want to just go a little bit broader here. I want to ask about just how unusual of a situation this is. I mean, we've been speaking with person after person yesterday, David Kotak, saying the Fed is in the dark and they are playing with fire. We don't even know what the consequences of this balance sheet roll-off really is. I mean, what do we know and just how unchartered is this? So it's 100% uncharted because quantitative easing was was first done by the Japanese and then it has subsequently been done in the US and in UK and in Europe. But no one's ever tried to do the opposite. No one's tried quantitative tightening before. So none of us really know. Like, yes, I have my estimate, 
But you can't take that as gospel. I mean, that is a Come that on. is an estimate. We take everything you say as gospel. <laughs> Preach. So, they exist. I, I, well, we, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at. Uh, I, I can certainly uh, give my opinions without too much difficulty. Um, so I, I do think that the Fed is kind of flying blind, and they're going to have to. And I think this is something that Jay Powell has to say in his press conference today, which is remember we have a January press conference, first one ever. Um, the, Jay Powell will say something like, "Look, we're paying attention to the balance sheet. If we see." these frictions, if we see things like the federal funds rate trading above interest paid on excess reserves, which would be one big thing, if we see volume in the Fed funds market pick up significantly because banks are demanding reserves, and if we see banks starting to buy a lot of treasury bills because they need them because of what I said earlier, that uh, that reserve balances are getting so low, those are some of the warning signs that the Fed will be looking at. And as soon as they see one of those, they'll probably say, no, Moss, we're done. All right. Where could Fed Chairman Powell today in his press conference or his statement throw a curveball to the market? I, so, I mean, it could, you know, that that's there's a wide range of what he could do. Um, I think that he I think the, the surprise would be if he was significantly more dovish than the markets expecting. Markets expect him to be a little bit dovish. A lot of the comments from a lot of the other Fed speakers over the last month were pretty dovish. He was pretty dovish in his last couple of comments. I think if he's even more dovish than that. So, for example, if he takes away all optionality and basically says, hey, we're done hiking until we know that the economy is back on track. That would be something that I think would get risk assets really happy. That would mean that, you know, treasury yields, you know, 10-year yields probably go back up to 3% pretty quick. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. Uh, Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Philosopher for us here at Bloomberg LP. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.